Hello, welcome to the next RevDem podcast. My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska, the RevDem editor. Our guest today is Dr. Douglas Morris, who is a legal historian and a practicing criminal defense attorney with Federal Defenders of New York. Several years ago, he published a book on an anti-Nazi criminal defense lawyer, Max Hirschberg, who was concerned with the conviction of the innocent people in the Nazi times. Douglas' last book, published last year by the Cambridge University Press, revolves around similar topic, but with a different hero, Ernst Frenkel. Welcome, Douglas. Thank you uh, for having me here. I'm delighted to uh, talk and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thank you for accepting the invitation. And today we will talk precisely about this book. So in the beginning, I must say that I was very much impressed by your book because you provided not only a broad analysis of the dual state provided by Frankel, but also managed to paint a social panorama of the German bar under the Nazi regime. So just to remind the listeners, uh, Ernst Frankel was a Jewish lawyer, mostly known for his theory of the dual state. And we will talk about this issue later. However, book by Douglas Morris does not only focus on this renowned piece of scholarship, because he also explains the very legal practice that Frankel carried out under the Nazi regime. So in fact, as one of the scholars pointed out, uh, one profession that withstood the destruction of democracy in the 1930s and persisted as one of the remnants of the Reichstag was lawyers. So first of all, let me ask you, what sparked your interest in Ernst Frenkel? How come a contemporary active legal practitioner based in New York is writing a book in legal history about Frenkel? Well, I, I wear two hats as a, a practicing criminal defense lawyer and as a legal historian. And as a legal historian, I was looking at Jewish lawyers in Nazi Germany and Ernst Frankel interested me more and more uh, because of what an extraordinary lawyer he was and what an extraordinary career he had during the Nazi era. Uh, he did three things that really caught my eye and I think anybody's eye who was uh, paying attention to him. First, uh, he represented uh, political defendants in court during the Nazi era. And I thought that was extraordinarily. How, how was it that a Jewish lawyer and a social democratic lawyer could represent defendants in courts during the Nazi era? Uh, how was it that he could engage in that representation and at times get acquittals for those defendants? And how was it that during that time he could actually survive? Uh, and I began then to look deeper and found a second dimension of what he was doing. And that second dimension was that while he was engaging in the representation of his clients, he was also uh, uh, active in the underground in Nazi Germany uh, and in the early resistance against the Nazi regime. When people think about the resistance against the Nazi regime, they also often think about the resistance during World War II, when there were elites in, within Nazi Germany who were opposing the regime, uh, culminating in the plot against Hitler of Jan July 20th, 1944. But beforehand, when many of those members of the elites were in fact supporting 
supporting the Nazi regime. There were other people who were opposing the regime uh, actively and uh, at great risk. Uh, and that included uh, often Jews, it included social Democrats, it included communists. Uh, these are, uh, if you wanna use the term of heroes, unsung heroes and whose uh, stories uh, have not uh, been uh, told uh, as uh, extensively as for example, the. Uh, uh, the Kreisau circle and others involved in the July 20 plot against Hitler's life. Ernst Frankel was among those early resistors, um, and he, uh, he he resisted by uh, um, by uh, producing illegal pamphlets, by helping to distribute illegal pamphlets, by uh, maintaining contacts with other resistors, um, and um, and with uh, getting information between and among resistors and abroad. Uh, and that just made the question all the sharper about how was this man able to uh, both represent clients, engage in the resistance and still survive. Uh, I had first thought maybe he had done less than met the eye. I found that he in fact did more than met the eye. Uh, and the third characteristic of Frankel uh, element of his career in Nazi Germany withdrew my attention is his classic book, The Dual State, which you referred to. It is the first full-length analysis of the Nazi legal political system uh, and the first full-length analysis that was uh, penned within Nazi Germany itself. And how did he uh, come to write this work uh, and, and it, not only the first full-length analysis, but in my judgment, and I think in the judgment of many scholars, one of the best ever uh, analyses of the Nazi legal political system. So I put those three elements together, his representation of political defendants, his activity in the underground, his writing of this major uh, legal political treatise, uh, and I thought he was worthy of inquiry, and uh, that's what I tried to do in my book. One of your biggest assets of the book uh, is the fact that you do not entirely focus on Frankel's scholarly work, precisely as you said, uh, nor on his whole biography, but on these few, perhaps crucial, from the perspective of, of time, years. So your time frame, uh, let's say, is delineated on the one hand by the Reichstag decree of 1933. Uh, and then uh, on the other hand, on Frankel's emigration to the US and the publication of his most famous book, The Dual State in 1941. So as you said, we can see him from three, uh, at least three uh, dimensions. And perhaps now we can start with the first one. So could you briefly describe what it meant for Frankel, a Jewish lawyer and a social democrat, to practice his profession in the Third Reich? Because it was remarkable that he did not decide to flee and still defended the victims of political persecution and many times successfully. Thank you for that question. During the Weimar Republic, Frankel had been a leading uh, and a young rising scar, star in the social democratic uh, movement. He had been a union lawyer and had been the uh, lead lawyer for the metal workers union. When the Nazis took power, uh, they destroyed the metal workers union. Uh, but they, uh, but 
his former uh, former members of that union started to come to him for legal assistance. Um, and so he gradually uh, began to represent these people who were uh, in need, uh, who were being prosecuted for having uh, supported uh, the Social Democratic Party after the Nazi regime outlawed it, uh, for uh, distributing illegal pamphlets, for engaging in what the Nazi regime characterized as a treason. Uh, as a lawyer in that uh, capacity, um, he um, went into court um, and uh, as any lawyer uh, would who's assigned to or who takes on the representation of a client, what distinguished him in, in, in one dimension was that he went into court and he actually represented his clients. Most uh, criminal defense lawyers who would take on a client charged with a political crime under the Nazi regime would uh, not effectively represent their client. They were too scared. They were too cowed. It was as if the uh, defendant did not have a lawyer at all. Frankel continued to work as a lawyer and to represent his, uh, his clients as lawyers. And he did that with tact, but with courage. He did it with tact because he understood that he could not raise certain issues uh, in uh, courts. For example, uh, there were uh, cases in which the issue arose as to uh, said that the Nazis had uh, ignited the Reichstag fire on February 28 of 1933. Uh, Frankel had no doubt that those clients were right that the Nazis had ignited that fire and, and uh, for their political purposes. But he knew that he could not say that in a court under the Nazi regime. That would have been too dangerous to, to uh, his clients as well as to himself. However, he did represent clients with great uh, courage in terms of the facts of the case, in terms, for example, of uh, raising the issue of Gestapo torture um, and that confessions had been elicited through Gestapo torture. And he did that. And there were judges, especially in 34 and 35, 1934 and 1935, who listened to that argument um, and, uh, and gave it weight. Uh, he was sticking, Frankel was sticking to the facts of the case, even those uh, very uh, dangerous facts to raise in the Nazi regime. Uh, so he represented his clients uh, with uh, courage and often effectively um, and was able to get acquittals, not all the time, uh, but he was able to do that. In the course of doing that, it really intersected with his uh, involvement in the resistance because as a lawyer, he was in a uh, unique position, uh, which was that he had contact with clients who came from various resistance groups. One of the characteristics of anti-Nazi resistance in the early years of the regime was that it was not coming from the two major, or major former opposition parties, from the communists or from the social democrats. It was rather coming from a series of small groups uh, sometimes related to the communists and social democrats in one way or another. In representing various clients, Frankel was representing people from a wide array of these groups. In fact, my belief, my suspicion, my conclusion is that there was nobody who had so much contact with so many members uh, across the resistance, certainly in Berlin, but also outside of Berlin, 
um, as Frankel did for that reason. That raises though another question. If he had so many contacts with so many members of the resistance, why wasn't he arrested sooner? And the answer I think is that the Nazis took their own ideology seriously and their own ideology demeaned lawyers and didn't take lawyers seriously. And as a result, they didn't pay as much attention to lawyers such as Frankel uh, and one or two other lawyers that he worked with. He worked closely with uh, uh, two other uh, non-Jewish resistance lawyers named uh, Heinrich Reinefeld and Werner Villa. Um, and they were investigated by the Gestapo and they were at times interrogated by the Gestapo. Uh, but the Gestapo never put the pieces together and never realized uh, what lawyers did in terms of consulting with their clients. Thank you for this description. It's really fascinating to hear all those stories. And uh, one question came to my mind, how was it possible actually that a Jewish lawyer could still practice his profession. You write extensively about it in your book, but could you explain it to the listeners? What was the legal basis for, for his um, lawyering? Right, and thank you for that question. It's a very important uh, question. Um, and it, on April uh, 7 of 1933, the Nazis issued a decree with the aim of disbarring all Jewish lawyers. But there were exceptions, three uh, exceptions, and the two most important was for uh, lawyers who had been admitted to the bar before the beginning of World War One, and second, uh, lawyers who had been veterans. As it turned out, um, uh, two thirds of lawyers, of Jewish lawyers in Nazi Germany, who were very prominent at the time in the legal uh, two thirds of them continue, could continue uh, in their profession to practice law. Uh, Frankel had fought in World War I. He had volunteered for the army. He in fact had been severely injured at the end of the war. So he fell under that exception and could continue to practice law. Later in 1934, at the beginning of 1934, there was a second attempt to disbar Frankel by saying that he uh, was active in a communist way, which was one of the provisions of the law under which uh, someone could be disbarred. Uh, he fought that disbarment. He argued, as other social democratic lawyers argued, that as social democrats, they were not communists uh, and were, were uh, not active in a communist way. Uh, he argued that by representing uh, clients who uh, had been communists, uh, as he was possibly doing at that very moment, uh, that was not uh, being active in a communist way that was essentially uh, representing uh, an individual uh, uh, defendant. So Frankel uh, was not disbarred and could continue to uh, practice law as he did. Uh, one of the uh, issues that that raises is uh, how did his practice of law compare with the practice of law of other Jewish lawyers. And there were similarities and there were differences. The similarities is that he was under uh, continuous uh, pressure and suspicion that otherwise he would not have been. Uh, the uh, similarities was, uh, were that he was subject to uh, humiliation. Uh, people uh, treated Jewish lawyers in uh, derogatory and humiliating ways. Uh, for other Jewish lawyers who were practicing in Nazi Germany, and there were uh, 
the beginning of the regime, there were probably 18,000 or so Jewish lawyers practicing in Nazi Germany. Uh, they were finally, ultimately, completely disbarred in November of 1938. By that time, uh, the number diminished uh, considerably, but there were till, still thousands of Jewish lawyers practicing uh, uh, law in uh, Nazi Germany. Um, what what the the uh, the Nazi regime uh, tried to isolate these lawyers both uh, economically and socially and reduce their clientele, um, and they did that successfully. Uh, they also the Nazi regime tried to uh, steer uh, uh, non-Jewish uh, so-called Aryan. Uh, uh, clients uh, away from Jewish lawyers, but also to steer Jewish lawyers towards uh, uh, Jewish clients towards Jewish lawyers. But the difference, uh, so it, the, the difference in uh, between Frankel and other Jewish lawyers was that because he was an active, had been an active social democrat, because he was representing members of the resistance members of the resistance were coming to him and he actually had a, a thriving uh, clientele and legal practice, certainly for 34 and 1935. I mean, that was a source of clients that were generally not going to other Jewish lawyers. In fact, they were going to very few Jewish, uh, to very few lawyers at all. I mentioned earlier that, uh, that most uh, defense lawyers were uh, too scared to effectively represent their clients. The Gestapo uh, in the mid thirties came up with a list of uh, defense lawyers that they were concerned about at number 13 for the whole country. Frankel was on the list uh, too. So Frankel was different from, the, uh, from other Jewish lawyers because uh, he had this uh, representation of resistors. And there's another aspect of that. And that is that Frankel was also uh, motivated and believed in his uh, ideology. And that was not just an ideology of resistance against the Nazi regime. It was surely that, uh, but he was also a Marxist. Um, and he, that Marxism really framed his understanding of events and how to uh, take action uh, in, in light of those events. Um, and uh, that gave him a, uh, a, a source of probably even emotional stability. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how someone like Frankel experienced uh, the Nazi regime emotionally, although I believe he was actually quite traumatized by it, uh, but he functioned uh, extraordinarily well during the regime. Uh, but emotionally, I think that the effects of the humiliation and the isolation were cushioned uh, by his uh, attempt to understand uh, in some, with some kind of larger analytical framework what was happening in the regime and which led him uh, not only to represent his clients but also to write about the regime and try to come up with a uh, essentially a political legal theory about which explained the functioning of that regime. Yeah, so now we can smoothly go to the second dimension of Frankel's uh, activity, because when he realized uh, in, let's say, 1935, that he cannot represent political clients anymore because of the laws and persecution, he, himself he was persecuted, he started to sabotage the Nazi regime by writing five essays against Nazism. 
and there he did not shy away from writing about political issues, nor he remained silent about anti-Semitism or capitalism. So in an article on illegal work, he even acted as an activist uh, and was not a mere critic advocating visible popular resistance. Um, but it was to no avail, unfortunately. He did not uh, manage to get attention of the people. But it is remarkable that in these pieces of writing, he was very much outspoken and acted like a real social democrat. So would you identify any specific themes, uh, common themes in these works? Yes, thank you. I mean, you gave a very nice summary already, and uh, um, that was, uh, I appreciate that. Um, you know, Frankel's work was, uh, during the regime, was fluid. He was always representing clients, although the uh, number of his clients reduced with time. Uh, he was always thinking about the uh, regime and, as you pointed out, began to write about it in a series of essays and finally between 37 and, and uh, 38 writing uh, his work, The Dual State. What, one of the things that strikes me about the five essays that he wrote uh, between uh, 34, 35 and uh, through The Dual State uh, is that he, although he had an ideological framework, he was not dogmatic and he was continuously thinking about what was happening and trying to figure out what was happening, both for an analytical understanding and also for uh, how he was going to represent clients. And I think that that dimension really comes through in those five essays. Um, he is willing to go out of his comfort zone. Uh, the first of the, uh, Frankel is a very analytical thinker, very sharp. It's exciting to read how he analyzes uh, material and information. His first essay, which uh, was distributed as an illegal pamphlet, uh, was one that uh, began with a story. He wasn't a storyteller, Frankel, but he began with a story. He began to use a new approach. The uh, essay that you mentioned, The Point of Illegal Work, uh, was a essay which stands out for Frankel in some ways because it was really a, a, a call to uh, action um, and a uh, with a more deliberate and open political aim. Uh, in the tone of that essay. He was willing to take on a new tone as he thought about what was happening and what were the needs of the moment. And he was willing to adjust and change his thinking. So for example, in that essay, The Point of Illegal Work, it's a remarkable essay. Here is a lawyer, a man who uh, has devoted his uh, career uh, to impart to laws and to carrying them out and to courts and to seeing what's happening under this new regime. And he is writing a pamphlet which says, we have to violate the laws and disobey the laws as we resist this tyrannical regime. Now that makes sense, um, but it's much harder point for a lawyer, especially a German lawyer to get to, uh, than for, uh, for other resistors. I mean, other Jewish lawyers were, pro were going in the opposite direction and to some extent. I mean, they certainly opposed the regime. A Jewish lawyer and a Jew in Nazi Germany could not be happy with that regime. Uh, however, uh, they wanted to be even more punctilious 
uh, in uh, abiding by laws and using laws uh, out of uh, fear that if they were to not do that, they would jeopardize uh, their situation. But here is Frankel, who's writing a pamphlet, an underground pamphlet, a secret pamphlet, uh, saying we have to uh, resist through various and different methods. Um, this um, also was a remarkable essay because he's uh, this uh, article essay uh, pamphlet as the uh, as with the other four what he wrote illegally. Um, he uh, was doing exactly what he was representing other clients for having done who uh, were prosecuted for having distributed illegal pamphlets. In terms of this um, article, the point of illegal work. He then moved on because he began to believe that the art, part of the argument that he made there just didn't hold. In that article, he was still optimistic that the workers uh, in Germany could rise up and there was more opposition among the workers uh, than the Nazi regime realized and that would be the undoing of the Nazi regime. What he soon began to notice and realize, uh, however painful it was for him to realize, was that the Nazi regime, in fact, was effectively co-opting many, many of the workers and effectively crushing uh, most of the <coughs> small and scattered opposition as there was and that existed. Um, and that put him into a new place uh, for when he began to write his uh, uh, work, uh, The Dual State, because he wrote the dual state from uh, a new uh, and maybe even lower position of weakness when the options for active resistance were uh, plummeting even further than they had uh, been uh, beforehand. And uh, at least he thought uh, that he wanted to think through what was the nature of this regime, to think it through in a uh, more large scale and systematic way not necessarily knowing how that analysis would lead to um, uh, re, uh, overall effective resistance against the regime. But from his position, he was going to do what he could. He did come up with a theory in that uh, uh, book uh, about uh, how to uh, engage in a more effective resistance. Uh, it has to do with uh, natural law. I'm not going to go into detail about natural law, but the basic principle was he wanted to find a unifying principle that could unite a resistance that extended beyond just the working class um, and that uh, brought in more people. When he wrote his essay, The Point of Illegal Work, uh, he was talking about a resistance by social democrats, a resistance by workers. When he wrote the dual state and talked about uh, natural law as a unifying theme for a uh, resistance, he was talking about a larger resistance, which included the workers, but went beyond the workers because that would be necessary if there would be any hope of uh, subverting and uh, ho hopefully ultimately toppling this regime. Yeah, um, so we can sum up the uh, his legal essays as trying to find some legal basis for the resistance. And also he mentioned that obviously in the dual state, but this book is famous not for 
the resistant, uh, resistance theme, but rather for the great theory of the normative and prerogative state, uh, the division between those two concepts. And um, as you notice, um, this book was published in the middle of the war, uh, because in 1941, so no wonder that nobody just noticed it in the US where it was published. And many times in your book, you insist on a proper reading of the most famous, this conceptual contribution by Frankel, so this normative and prerogative state, that they are not opposing each other. It is indeed surprising to find out that many scholars even now fall into this trap and equate the normative state with the rule of law. And could you elaborate on this relation between those two concepts? Yes. So Frankel's concept was that the uh, a dual state existed in Nazi Germany, consisting of the prerogative state, which was the state of uh, arbitrary power, um, in which the uh, authorities could act uh, at their own uh, whim or for whatever their political purposes might be, uh, embodied by the Gestapo, the SS, uh, earlier the SA, uh, and the Nazi party itself. Uh, but the court system continued to function. And that court system and the, uh, also the administrative system uh, of, of the executive continued to function, that constituted the uh, normative state. But the normative state in Frankel's view uh, was not the rule of law. Uh, rather, it was a legal system which uh, was the traditional legal system carried over, the legal system continued to function. Uh, carried over from uh, the Weimar Republic and continued to function, but it was not uh, under those uh, principles uh, of the Weimar Republic. Um, it was a legal system that was now uh, Nazified. Um, and furthermore, this was not a static uh, legal system. It was a legal system that was being Nazified, that was moving more and more uh, in the direction of uh, Nazi uh, policy and goals uh, underpinned by Nazi ideology. Frankel saw a dynamic interplay between the prerogative state and the normative state. Uh, the prerogative state led the way and the normative state followed. And Frankel worked out how the prerogative state exerted its uh, influence and force to reform uh, the normative state. The normative state, uh, therefore, um, uh, was part of the Nazi legal system, and it was a and it was a legal political system which then was able uh, to accomplish its goals through th various methods. There were times when the Nazis used violence; they used violence when they came to power, especially in March and April of uh, 1933, when they rounded up. Uh, opposition and uh, treated them brutally, uh, they, they, they use violence, but they didn't use violence alone. They also used the court system. Um, and their use of the court system was, uh, was of a court system that they energetically reshaped in light of the, uh, their own uh, ideology and with the use of the uh, prerogative state. Now, one of the, uh, one of the, um, um, uh, methods that they used was also 
to create a new set of courts. They did that immediately in March of 1933 by creating special courts. And then again in April of 1934 when they created the infamous uh, People's Court, which people, uh, which, which uh, when we studied Nazi Germany, we also think of, uh, of Freisler and how brutal he was during World War II in the People's Court. It was before the People's Court that the uh, defendants were tried who participated in or were charged with participating in the July 20 plot against Hitler's life. Uh, but that, the, 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 that People's Court uh, originated in April of 1934. And between the special courts and the People's Court, uh, these were Nazi courts, uh, Nazified courts, the courts that were uh, it, 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 by their very nature uh, formed uh, as uh, closer parts to the prerogative state. Uh, cases, political cases were moved into these courts. It was partly because political cases were moved from regular courts into these political courts that uh, Frankel was uh, less and less able to represent political defendants in 36, 37, and 38, for example. Um, in my uh, book, I suggest that in fact, uh, we might think about this as a triple state. Uh, with these courts as the kind of mediators between the normative state and the prerogative state. But one of the critical aspects of Frankel's uh, analysis of the dual state was that the prerogative state uh, had the ultimate decision-making authority. The prerogative state, uh, if it made a decision, that decision would carry. The normative state never uh, had the um, had the ability to override the prerogative state ultimately. Uh, what I think Frankel referred to in legal terms as the prerogative state had jurisdiction over jurisdiction. Yeah, it is really significant that in his theory, we can see that he didn't perceive law as dogmatic, as you said, but rather as a dynamic system that constantly changes. It's really important contribution. And Describing his years in the US, you state that Frankel admired American freedom with its protections against arbitrary rule, as he experienced under the Nazi regime. However, during his whole life, he was attached to the notions of economic and social justice. So my question would be, were his German ideals in tension with what he found in the capitalist America? And more broadly, how did he find himself in the US society and academia? Frankel was very taken by the United States. He got out of uh, Germany on September 20 of 1938. Um, he uh, was warned that he was about to be arrested that day. Um, and he got to the United States where he did a number of things, which I find remarkable. He went to uh, the University of Chicago Law School and the United States Law School the last three years. Uh, he finished University of Chicago Law School, which is one of the best law schools in the country in two years. Uh, during that time, he was improving his English. He was helping to translate works of Paul Tillich. And he was reworking his manuscript of the dual state. Uh, the manuscript he was able to get smuggled out in a French diplomatic pouch. Uh, so we had the, uh, his draft, uh, and then he uh, reworked it and translated it into English so that it was uh, published in 1941 in English. Uh, when he came to the United States, he was very impressed 
by the notions of freedom in the United States, by the notions of individual rights. Um, he, as you appropriately and correctly say, uh, continued to always believe in economic and social justice. Uh, it would be an interesting question, which I can't answer how he then uh, integrated the ideas of uh, individual rights with his earlier Marxism. He shed his Marxism after he uh, uh, came to the United States. He uh, devoted the uh, last several decades of his career uh, in, he taught at the Free University of Berlin from the early 50s until he, uh, until he uh, retired in the early 1970s. He helped to invent the field of political science in Germany. Uh, and he developed and uh, taught his uh, idea of pluralistic democracy. And one of the characteristics of that idea was to import and to integrate ideas from uh, American liberal democracy into post-war German uh, democracy as a way of building up a liberal, a liberal democratic system uh, that uh, was anything uh, but the Nazi regime and would, would help to assure uh, that uh, the, uh, something like the Nazi regime would not uh, succeed uh, again. Um, so he was very taken by uh, his experience in the United States. He was very grateful. Uh, and it did influence his later thinking uh, most uh, broadly and largely in his theory of uh, pluralistic democracy. Going toward the conclusion, I would like to ask the question on the moral assessment of Frankel's liberal lawyering. In your book, you discuss also the problem if he was a true resistor and hesitate a bit to state it firmly. So I would like to ask um, if you would like to share your doubts on this regard. Uh, yes, I, I'm surprised that you think I have doubts on this regard. Uh, maybe I wasn't clear enough. I have no doubt that Frankel uh, was a resistor uh, against the Nazi regime. I have no doubt that he resisted effectively and imaginatively. Uh, as well as with great courage. Uh, I think that he tested the boundaries of resistance uh, in order to resist effectively in a number of different realms, to resist effectively uh, by through legal means in courts, to resist effectively in an underground without becoming a martyr, and to resist effectively as a scholar producing a scholarly work which had scholarly work, uh, worth uh, and uh, but at the same time, uh, hopefully, would also have a uh, influence in terms of um, uh, uh, trying to figure out ways of uh, bringing down a regime and thinking about ways of bringing down a regime required, uh, in part, in large part, understanding how that regime uh, came to be and how it functioned. Uh, where its uh, vulnerable points uh, might be. Uh, I think that uh, Frankel was clearly someone who resisted the regime. And also, um, and this is an important part of what I was thinking about in writing my book, that he, he was very effective, uh, really stood up, but he was not the only resistor at that time. There was two or three other lawyers who effectively uh, tried to resist. Uh, Verna Villa, I mentioned before, Heinrich Reinefeld, who worked with Frankel. They were his clients. These were people who were not 
people of eminence uh, who took tremendous risks in uh, circumstances of great danger, of isolation, without support from other people, and they continued to act. And they continued to put their lives on the line, to put their safety on the line uh, in the hope of bringing down a tyrannical regime. Uh, and I think that in some, one of the problems with writing about Frankel was uh, a, a, a scarcity of sources. I tried very hard to find all kinds of scattered sources, but doing that also required to try to find out about these variety of clients, of resistors, of what they did. And the, these are people who also uh, require, uh, in my view, great admiration. Uh, so uh, I think that Frankel was a resistor. I think that he was a resistor among other resistors. And I think he was a resistor among other resistors who were isolated among a population that in fact was uh, to the most part, uh, unfortunately, energetically uh, supporting in one way or another, a horrible, cruel and brutal regime. And on, the, and on this uh, appreciation, we will end. Thank you very much, Dr. Douglas Morris. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I very much enjoyed our conversation. And I recommend to all of you reading the book by Douglas Morris, uh, Legal Sabotage. It's really fascinating and brings much satisfaction in reading. So thank you very much once again. If you would like to be updated with our podcasts and written content, follow the RevDem on Facebook or on Twitter. Subscribe also to the RevDem podcast on Spotify and enjoy more conversations with leading scholars. Thank you and until the next time. Thank you.